Now, will you turn with me this morning to uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 7. Last week, you remember, we began our new series on this pilgrim life. We talked about the faithful Christian. This morning, I want to talk about the struggling Christian. Can you identify with that? The struggling Christian. So, Romans chapter 7, and we shall begin to read in verse 14 through 25. The Apostle Paul has just explained that we understand sin by the law. Through the law and the knowledge of the law, we get a, a grasp or an understanding of what sin is. Then he says in verse 14 of Romans chapter 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not, want, for I do, not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that we come into your presence to hear your word. And we desire above all that you would change our hearts, that you would help us as believers, and if we are not believers, that then by your sovereign grace, you will draw such a one to yourself. Help us to understand this passage in Romans 7. Help us to comprehend uh, how we can experience deliverance and help. And so we ask your rich blessing upon the preaching of your word. We pray these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think it's true to say that if we are honest with ourselves, every Christian must confess that we have struggled as Christians. That there have been occasions and opportunities when we have failed the Lord and sinned against God, and we've been troubled by that. In fact, you may even this morning be struggling with some personal sin, some difficulty in your life that you know God is not pleased with. 
The Christian life is without question, without exception, a life of struggle. There is no bed of roses pathway, easy way to glory. And every Christian soon enough discovers that, don't they? And so what I want to do this morning is that when I look at this passage, I want to confess with you, because I know you'll confess it, that my Christian life, your Christian life, is not easy. It is, as the Apostle Paul tells us, a war. It's a fight. It's a spiritual fight. It's a battle. In fact, the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, didn't he, in chapter 6, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and spiritual powers, powers of, that are over this cosmic darkness. And we recognize that, that our fight, our struggle as Christians is not like going into the boxing ring down the road and beating up another opponent physically. But our struggle is a spiritual struggle of cosmic proportions. A struggle that is not easy. A struggle that may bring despair. That may make you think after a while, is, is the Christian life really worth it? I want to give up. I want to give in. I want, to, I want to abandon this course because this road that I'm on, as Jesus said, is truly a narrow way and the gate is narrow and the way is hard and the way is difficult. Every Christian knows that. We understand the, the great spiritual struggle and warfare that we're in. As Paul told the Galatians, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh and the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And they're opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things that we really want to do. When we want to please God, we discover that there's a war within us to do the things that don't please God. And when we want to do those things that don't please God, we discover that there's still a struggle within us from the Spirit who says, Don't do that. Don't go down that path. Don't sin. And we are in this struggle which is we call the Christian life. I think that's exactly what Paul is describing for us right here in Romans chapter 7. Will you notice first of all verse 18 and 19? In verse 18 and 19, I know that nothing good dwells in me, Paul says, that's in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I mean, that shows you your struggle, doesn't it? You recognize, you know, that in your flesh there is nothing good. The Bible is clear to make that, isn't it, to us? That there's nothing good in my flesh. Sometimes we think that by the flesh I can overcome evil or overcome sin. That I can deal with these temptations and these problems and sins that I have. But there's nothing in my flesh to help me. In fact, the flesh is sinful. And we shall discover that this flesh, to be fleshly, is to do sinful things. So, how can I then be a holy, godly Christian? Without struggle. Well, you won't. Because every holy Christian experiences the struggle that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. We want to do, Paul says, that which is right. We want to do that which is good. We have the desire, but Paul says we lack the ability. And haven't you discovered that in your own experience? 
You'll want to do that which is right. You begin the day so wonderfully. You're on the right path. Things are good spiritually. And then just out of nowhere, temptation comes. And you sin against God. And you wonder to yourself, I just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Whatever that particular sin or sins might happen to be. Is it worth the struggle? Can I actually overcome this great struggle that I have? Notice, will you, in uh, verse 15, that the Apostle Paul says that I do not do what I want. In fact, the very thing I hate, that's what I find myself doing. And that sounds, doesn't it, just like a conflict. That sounds like a struggle. That sounds like difficulty. Verse 21, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. When I want to do that which is right and good, evil lets me know that it's right there and willing to do whatever it can in my life. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress, and if you've never read read Pilgrim's Progress, I want to urge you to read John Bunyan's classic. Because he has so many elements in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress about how to live the Christian life. Christian has been to the cross, and he has received a parchment scroll or a roll, a book, from uh, the shining ones or the angels at the cross now that he is converted And they've given him this role which is really his assurance of salvation. The Bible says that when, the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress says that when Christian received his salvation and that role or that parchment, he gave three leaps for joy because he was assured of his salvation. But the very thing that Christian experiences right after having been to the cross is that he comes to this hill. This hill that is called hill difficulty. And Bunyan tells us that the narrow way is over the hill. When he came to the hill, there was a path to the right to go around the hill. And there was a path to the left to go around the hill that way. The one was called danger and the other was called destruction. There were two men that were traveling with Christian along the way when they came to hill difficulty. The one man's name was formal and the other man's name was hypocrisy. The one took the right path and the other took the left path and they were never heard of from again. But Christian, we are told, on his hands and knees begins begins to climb the hill difficulty. He makes it halfway up where there is a beautiful arbor, a spring of refreshment. And there he sits under the arbor because the labor of going on the narrow way uphill difficulty has taken all the strength out of him. And so he refreshes himself and he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, that parchment roll, which is his assurance of salvation, rolls away from him, falls out of his garments. And there he is fast asleep and then he wakes up and realizes that time has gotten away from him and he must be on his way. And so he hurries up the hill and he finds it great difficulty as he goes. As he's going up the hill, two men come running back towards him, down the hill. Their names are Timorous and Mistrust. And they tell Christian, as they run down the hill past him, there are lions in the way. There are lions in the way. 
And those lions, Bunyan tells us, are there to test the faith of the traveler. To test their faith. Christian realizes that he has lost his role and so he goes back down to the arbor and he searches for it and there he finds his parchment roll and he tucks it back in and he starts again up the hill. But it has gotten late in the day and darkness is coming and he's afraid of the lions that are in front of him. But as he travels up that hill, he sees a palace that is called Palace Beautiful. And he, he thinks about, well, I can go there. When suddenly the lions come out to greet him and to meet him. And as they come out and do their roaring and make him afraid, there is a man in the beautiful palace who shouts out to him, who's the porter. He says, look, if you stay in the middle of the path, you'll be safe. And what Christian doesn't realize is that the lions are chained and can only go so far and not take his life. And so he discovers to himself that if he holds the course, he shall make it, and he does. That is a description, isn't it, of the struggling Christian. Up a hill called difficulty, on a narrow way, that is beset by dragons and beasts and lions in the figurative sense. Beset by my sins and my temptations on every hand. And so as Christian makes it, so too the instruction of John Bunyan is that every Christian can make it to the celestial city if they persevere. John Bunyan has written a masterpiece, hasn't he? Spurgeon it was said, had read it hundreds of times. You ought to read it, not just once, but more than once, because you will feel exactly what it is like to be a Christian, and you will identify with Christian as he is on his pilgrimage. It's about the struggle of a Christian. Now, this is exactly what I think you find here in Romans chapter 7. This is a passage from Paul's perspective about the struggle that a Christian undergoes. Some people see this passage, Romans chapter 7, as the struggle that an unbeliever has. And I must confess I have great difficulty grasping and understanding that. Because if you look at verse 22 through 25, the apostle says, I delight in the law of God, in my inner man, inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. So here's a man in conflict, right? And he delights in God's law on the one hand, and then on the other hand, there's another law waging war against his mind and making him captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members, in his body. That's why he says, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, the law of sin. You see Paul saying quite clearly here that he is struggling with sin that is contained within what he calls this body of death. And yet at the same time, there is God's law before him in his mind. And he says, I delight in the law of God. I delight in it in my inner man. Frankly, no unbeliever delights in the law of God. No unbeliever finds delight in God's law. No unbeliever thinks like that. 
No unbeliever recognizes of themselves that they are wretched in the sight of God and need saving and need help. No unbeliever recognizes that that deliverance comes from none other than Christ Jesus our Lord. No unbeliever would confess verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. What is the one thing you discover unbelievers are always telling you about how good they are? About how wonderful they are? No, I think Paul is giving us here quite simply his struggle, his contention with sin. Now, let us remind ourselves of how did Paul get to Romans chapter 7 to talk about this great difficulty that he experiences as a Christian in his life. Well, what has he been telling the Romans? Well, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul has spoken about sin as being universal, and the consequence of that universal sin is that all men, women, boys, girls, every single person is guilty before God. doesn't matter if they're Jewish, chapter 2, or Gentiles, chapter 1 and chapter 3. What Paul says and discovers is that the whole world is in sin and rebellion against God. And in fact, in chapter 1, he outlines some of the sins that we discover in our own country, in our own culture, and around us every single day of our lives. So he has told us that sin is everywhere, and everyone is guilty. And the only answer to that universal problem, he says, is the gospel. It's the gospel that brings salvation that gives deliverance. And so when you read chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, he unfolds the theme of Romans or the theme which is the gospel. For I am not ashamed, he says, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, whether they are Jew or Gentile. And then he says, for in it, in the gospel... In the gospel is the righteousness of God being revealed from faith to faith. And then he makes this statement, For the just shall live by faith. And that's the theme of this epistle to the Romans. That the gospel is that which brings salvation to us. That the gospel is that which brings righteousness before God. And so he unfolds from Romans chapter 3 verse 21... The unrighteousness, of, uh, sorry, the righteousness of God. He unpacks that subject, that theme, and he takes us from Romans 3.21 to Romans chapter 8 and verse 39. And so we're right in that. We're right in that. And when he unpacks the theme of chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, the righteous or the just shall live by their faith, he does it in two ways from chapter 3 to chapter 8. And in very simple terms, the very first thing that he begins to unfold is that great doctrine of justification. In chapter 4, he'll tell us how Abraham was justified. Chapter 5, he will tell us that we are justified by faith, and as a result of being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So he defines what justification is. And when he talks about justification, he is describing to, to his readers, these Romans, their relationship to God. And their relationship to God because of justification is that they have a right standing with God. Because they are justified in the sight of God. So that's the first big thing Paul talks about. And then he talks about the doctrine of sanctification. 
And so when you get to chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, he's unfolding things that pertain to justification, and what, I mean, to sanctification. If justification is my relationship to God, then sanctification is my responsibility before God. And that is simply righteous living. If justification is my right standing before God, then sanctification is my right living before God, my practice of my Christian life. And let us be clear to understand that sanctification only exists because of justification. You cannot be sanctified without being justified. You cannot experience this Christian struggle unless you are a Christian, which is to be justified before God. So there are these two great doctrines that Paul unfolds, but what he does is that he puts those two doctrines underneath the umbrella of a spiritual reality for every Christian. And that umbrella is our union with Christ. That's why Paul will tell you things like, when Jesus died, I died. I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians chapter 2. He talks about, about this, this uh, righteous standing that he has with God. And he talks about being justified by faith. And then he goes on to describe that I've been united to Jesus Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And in fact, as he tells the Ephesians, I'm seated at the right hand, or I'm seated with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, these two doctrines, justification and sanctification, they express our union with Christ. That we belonged to Jesus Christ. Doesn't Paul love the use of those words to be in Christ? To be in Jesus? To be in Him? You read the epistle to the Ephesians chapter 1. It's everything about being in Him. In Him. In Christ. He is simply talking about our union to our Lord Jesus Christ. So being justified is to, is to possess this union. But being sanctified is to practice this union. And my true practice, or my practice to be true, is because of what I possess, a righteous, justified standing before God. And so when you get to chapter 6, Paul will tell you things like, you are dead to sin, but alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God because of Jesus. And he calls upon us, doesn't he, when you read chapter 6, to put away our sins to die to our sins, to mortify our sins, to not continue to in sin because we died to sin. In fact, in Romans 6, 6, he says our old self has been crucified with Christ. Why? First reason, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And secondly, that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Now you know the struggling Christian finds themselves sometimes feeling like they are a slave of sin. Can't get rid of the stuff. Can't deal with sin. Can't get rid of it. And then Paul makes these startling claims like Romans 6-7. We have been set free from sin. Well, how come I still sin? If I've been set free, Paul, how come I'm still sinning? Can you explain that to me? So that's what he's, he wants to talk about in chapter 7 and lead to the life in the Spirit in chapter 8. Because the only way to overcome life in the flesh or being fleshly is by living the life of the Spirit of God. 
Now I find myself like Paul. When I want to do right, evil is close at hand. I desire to do it, but sometimes I find I don't have the ability to do it. Don't you experience that? That's the struggling Christian. Sin is still, sin is still at work in us, still at work in me, still at work in you, and I still sin. So what does that mean? Is a Christian supposed to be like that? Is a Christian to be free of sin? How do we explain this? So when you read Romans chapter 6, you discover, because Paul says, I died with Christ, I was buried with Him, I raised with Him, that he says that the effects of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are in relation to the penalty of my sin. That what Jesus did in His dying, in His burial and resurrection, was to deal with my guilt. My guilt standing before God. My being under the condemnation and the wrath of God, which he talked about in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and onwards, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who commit unrighteous things. And so the effects of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are with, with particular emphasis on the penalty of my sin. And as far as God is concerned, the penalty is paid. How do you know that? Jesus died. So God can be just. At the same time, He can justify the sinner. So Romans chapter 7, if Romans chapter 6 talks about the penalty of sin being taken care of, Romans chapter 7 is going to unfold for me the principles of sin and the principles of grace that now operate within me. And every Christian... Every one of us needs to understand and needs to know these things. So as far, first of all, as the penalty of sin is concerned, that is fully paid at the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm free from sin's guilt and I'm free from sin's condemnation. In that sense, Paul says you're right with God. You're justified before God. So you can see that this is, by the way, a once-for-all work of God. Jesus doesn't have to die again and again and again to justify, to justify, to justify. You know, justification is a one-time work. And it's Jesus who has secured our justification by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus doesn't have to die again and again and again because by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's the first thing, the penalty, done. But the second thing is the power of sin and the presence of sin is still with me. I still experience the presence of sin and the power of sin. They're still with me. So it is now sanctification that gets to deal with the power of sin. But I know that only when I get to glory will the presence of sin be gone forever. So if that's true, that means in sanctification, I'm in this struggle, and not only in this struggle, but I will never be free of the presence of sin until my final, complete, total salvation comes when I'm with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. That tells me that sanctification is progressive, that I'm in a struggle, that I'm always going to be in a struggle until the presence of sin is removed. So in this struggle, the whole issue is to do with the power of sin in my life or against me. 
Now, as I've said, <clears throat> all the things I've said are really theology. This is the theology of why we struggle with sin. In fact, Romans 6 and verse 14 says that sin does not have to have dominion over me. doesn't have to have dominion over me. Why not? Number one, because I'm no longer under the law as a means of satisfying the justice of God. I can't merit God's favor by my works ever. So I'm not under law, so my works cannot deal with my sin. But I am under grace, and therefore, because of what Jesus has done, he enables me to overcome my sins and not yield to them. Now, you know, as Christians, I don't think we struggle with the doctrine. I mean, I've just explained the doctrines to you. I don't think we, under, we struggle with the doctrines. We say, yes, I believe that. That's the truth. That's what God's Word says. What we struggle with is, strange to say, the struggle. The reality of it in my life. I get the theology. I get the doctrine. I understand the doctrine. But the actual reality of sin in me, that's a different story. I understand why it's there. And I think to myself, well, I should be easily able to overcome my sins, but find that it's not so easy. That the struggle is the real issue. Paul tells us in Romans 7, there's only one way of deliverance, and that is Jesus himself. Not only that, but you will never be delivered from your struggles by self-will or by your own effort. And that's one thing we all try. Oh, if I can just do this, and do this, and do this, I'll overcome. Only to find that when you do those things, you suddenly submit and commit sin. So it's not by self-effort or willpower. Do you know why? Because sin is too smart for that. In fact, Paul tells us right here in Romans seven eleven that sin seizes opportunities. Sin latches on to the opportunity. So sin is too smart for that. In fact, sin comes at me through temptation, right, in a variety of ways. It comes from inside, because there's a principle of sin working in me. So I, I get sin attacking me from within, but I also get tempted by the world, and I get tempted by Satan himself. Those are my enemies, the world, the flesh, and the enemy, Satan himself. And those enemies, by the way, are all around us, in us, about us. We wrestle not, remember, against flesh and blood, but against these cosmic powers of darkness, all around us and in us. And by the way, sin is relentless, and sin is remorseless. Feels nothing for you. Doesn't care about you. It wishes to destroy only. It is seductive, it is devious, it is dangerous, it is subtle, and it is shameful. That's what sin is. In fact, when I became a Christian, that's exactly what I recognized I was like with sin. It was this to me. It was deadly. It was dangerous. And the only way Paul says you can be delivered, verse 24 and verse 25, is to through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I ask myself, okay, but how does that really work? That's what I want to know. How does that operate? How does that work for me? Well, you notice verse 24, Paul makes a statement, and then he asks a question. Wretched man that I am. Statement, 
question, who will deliver me from this body of death? I asked myself, why doesn't Paul say, what will deliver me? What will deliver me? Because what, the what has the idea of what you might think you can do. Instead, it is who can deliver me? Who can deliver me? Now, I'm prepared, and I have been, to try all kinds of things to overcome sin and failed. Because there is deliverance only in the person of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says, right? Thanks be to God, verse 25, who will deliver me? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul's looking for deliverance, right? Who will deliver me? That's what he asks. And he narrows it down, I think, in verse 25, to this whole subject of what do you delight in and what do you desire? What is it that you really are captured by? What, does, does, what do you desire truly? And what do you find your ultimate joy in? Now that's the power of sin, right? It holds out pleasure. It holds out joy. But it's temporary. And it's seductive. And it allures you. And it draws you in. And it would capture you. But then you discover when you have sinned against God how wretched you feel. And how terrible you are. Why did I do that? That's like Christian berating himself as he went back down the hill difficulty. Why did I lose my role? Why did I do that? Why did I fall asleep? Because that's what he did. And we berate ourselves again and again. So what is it that you really delight in? What is it that you truly desire, right? So Paul says two things. Look what he says. First of all, in verse 22... He says, number one, with my mind, or my inner man, as he puts it, I serve the law of God. I delight in the law of God. So that's the first thing. With my mind, I serve the law of God and I delight in it. It's a good thing. But then he says, secondly, with, in verse 23, with my body of death, that's my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So Paul finds himself serving two laws. The law of sin, and he says, the law of God, which I delight in my inner man. And you also have to understand two distinctions. Before I became a Christian, before you were a Christian, you were said to be in the flesh. After you are a Christian, you are said to be in the spirit. And yes, the flesh is still in me. I do fleshly things. The principle of sin is still operating. Paul calls it, verse 23, the law of sin. That's why he says my body is this body of death because that's where the law of sin is operating within me. And if you go over to chapter 8 and look at verse 8, what does he say? Chapter 8, verse 8. He says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So who can please God? Only those who are in the Spirit, right? Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So how shall I be delivered from sin's power? It's not by the flesh. There's no good in my flesh. The flesh is of no help at all, Paul tells us. 
So how shall I be delivered from sin's power? It is through the Spirit of God that we are delivered. I must yield to the Spirit of God. Now, think about your struggles. Perhaps it's anger, impatience, greed, lust, critical spirit, judging others, bad language, gluttonous. I mean, there are all kinds of stuff that come from the flesh, right? This body of death. In fact, the list is endless. The list is endless, which tells me my fight is endless until glory. So I must realize I'm in war. I'm at war. I'm in a fight. I'm in a conflict. I'm in a battle. There's a war raging within me. The flesh and the spirit, they hate each other. They're always warring against each other. The the flesh and the spirit never say, let's make peace. They are at war with each other. There is no peace. So I need to understand that. And then I need to think of what is it that I truly love now that I'm a Christian. Paul says, I delight in my inner man in the law of God. I love God's law, he says. That tells me if I want to delight in something, I need to delight in God. I need to delight in, in what God has said. I need to love God more than I love sin, right? John Owen, I think, understood that because he said this, Our sin is a burden to us, and it afflicts us, rather than being a pleasure that delights us. Because, you know, if sin delighted you, after you've committed sin, you'd just say, I want more of it. But the sad thing, or the good thing is, you say, I wish I'd never done it. And how guilty you can feel. But you know, union with Jesus from Romans chapter 6 is built on two truths. The first truth is, I died to sin. When Jesus died, I died. It's not I'm in the process of dying. As far as God's concerned, like Jesus died, you died. You're dead to sin. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of Satan. You've been taken out of that kingdom and you've been put into Christ's kingdom. So you are dead to sin, he says. That's the truth about being a Christian. You are dead to sin. You've been set free. And then he says, secondly, you're alive to God. Now imagine that. Alive to God. That's how God sees me. God wants me to think like that. And I need to reflect on both truths. That I died to sin and that I'm alive to God. I can't just reflect on one while I'm dead to sin. No, I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God. Both truths are necessary. That's why I love John 15, you know. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. If you want life, if you want to live, you are attached to me, the vine. In other words, the vine is life. Jesus is the vine. I am the branch. I'm attached to the vine. If I am cut off from the vine, no life. I'm dead. It's of no value. You take that branch, you cut off, you throw it in the fire, it's useless and it's done away with. But no, John 15 says, I am connected to Christ. I'm connected to the vine. Jesus is the vine. I am the branch. And spiritual life-giving sap flows from Christ to the branches, to His children, to His people. And since it's life-giving from Christ, I participate practically 
in union with Jesus. That's what it means to be un- united to Jesus. I'm a branch attached to the vine. And I'm always attached to the vine. So I need to move from the theology of my union with Jesus Christ to the thrill of what it means to be in Jesus. What do you delight in? Jesus or sin? What is it that captures your, your real life? So John, or I should say the Lord Jesus Christ, he focuses in John's Gospel, in John chapter 15, on two things. He says, I'll give you my joy, and as a result of that, you'll bear fruit. You can only bear fruit if you stay connected to the vine. And since we're all believers, and we are connected to the vine, because to not be connected to the vine is to be an unbeliever. So to be connected to Jesus in this way is to have union with Christ and He promises me His joy. Isn't that what I'm supposed to delight in? Jesus says, my joy will be in you. Your joy will be full when my joy is in you. How do I do that? I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. I'm alive to Christ. His life comes to me and is in me. He gives me His joy and I produce fruit in my sanctification as I submit myself to this delight. So to bear fruit as a Christian, to be productive as a Christian, is to saturate yourself and bathe yourself with the joy of the living Christ. How do I do that? Thank God you have the Word, right? Thank God you can pray. Thank God you can meet together like we do. Fellowship of the saints. Thank God you can spend time with Christ. Those are the means. Means of grace, if you like. By which we take and receive from Jesus. So if I want to overcome any struggle, and I have them, it is only by grace. It's only by delighting in Christ. It's only by reminding myself of my union with Jesus and that in my union with Jesus I'm justified and I'm sanctified or being sanctified. Or to put it another way, in my union with Christ I died to sin, I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God. And I must think like that. So when sin comes my way, I have to say my old life is dead and that is dead to me and my new life is alive. And listen... Here's the thing about sin. Sin is always seeking to increase. But grace increases all the more. You want to overcome the sin that increases? Submit to the grace. Because it just superabounds the sin that you have. So there are three things I find I must do. Number one, I must stop providing sin with opportunity. If that means I don't go to that place, or I don't read that, or I don't watch that, then I must do that. I must stop providing sin with opportunity, number one. Number two, I must stop participating in sin by abstaining or refusing. I'm not going to do that. I'm done. I refuse. Lord, help me. Number three, I must start pursuing Jesus through grace. Through grace. Not by efforts of the law or works of the law, but through His grace to me. Here's what grace does. Number one, grace teaches you to say no. 
But at the same time, number two, grace teaches you to say yes. No to sin, yes to Christ. So, no to sin, yes to righteousness. No to sin, I put off, I die. Yes to Christ, I put on and I live unto Jesus. So how does God's grace, Christ's grace, help us then to overcome, to wage war, to gain the upper hand in my struggle? Two major facts. Number one, here they are. Your sins are forgiven and God accepts you completely and unconditionally through the atoning work of Jesus. Do you want to know how God accepts you? Through Jesus. Through His sacrifice. He shed His blood. He made atonement. He paid the price. He bore the wrath of God in your place. He underwent the condemnation that was yours. Jesus took my place. And through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus, my sins are forgiven. And God says, they are completely forgiven. It's not as if God holds back something. I think sometimes we Christians think God holds back something of his forgiveness. Well, that's okay for the super Christian, but not for me. No. In justification, all of our sins are washed away by the blood of the Lamb. So big, big fact. If I want to know what grace is like and what it means to me, rest on the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two, deliverance from the dominion of sin and the enabling sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit is only through my union with Jesus. So it is the atoning work of Jesus in my justification that ushers me into this sanctifying process. And that sanctifying process is the overcoming of the dominion of sin and yielding to the enabling power of the Spirit of God. My union with Christ. One thing I have discovered when you get new life as a Christian, Jesus keeps you in that life. Jesus doesn't say, okay, look, now I've saved you, I did all that work for you, but now you're on your own. Oh yes, I do have a responsibility, but I also possess the Spirit of God and the enabling power to do that, to say no, to die to self, to die to sin, and to say, yes, Lord, I now possess that power and that ability. So struggling, as you know, with many things that we struggle with can lead you to despair. Many people have despaired even to death. Sin can do that. It is destructive. It is harmful. And many people, many Christians, are struggling seriously because they're not reflecting and thinking about these truths that are true of them. Not something they have to become, but that are true of them. Jesus died. It is done. Penalty is paid. And now, to overcome the power of sin and deal with the presence of sin, I have the Holy Spirit within me. And yes, I recognize sin and temptation. It will always be there. Tomorrow, tonight, all the time, sin will try to wage war. But the Spirit resists and the Spirit wars against the flesh. And the Spirit enables me to enjoy my union with Jesus Christ so that I receive life from Christ in the Spirit so that I can walk just today, just tonight, just tomorrow morning, and tomorrow afternoon, 
one day at a time, one step at a time up the hill called difficulty. That's how you do it. Because of the atonement of Jesus and because of our uniting with Jesus. Ah, you know, sin brings shame, doesn't it? It's the horrible thing about sin. It brings shame to us. We're ashamed. We feel it. How can I overcome my shame? My past. The present. Right now. The facts are that Jesus has washed away your sin by His blood. Jesus has dealt with sin and its condemnation and your guilt at the cross. And He has given you His Spirit to live your life as a Christian in the power of the Spirit. John Murray, the great Princeton, Westminster Theological Seminary, New Testament professor, he's written some very interesting things. I'm going to read them to you. Number one, this is what he says. He says, The presence of sin in the believer involves conflict in his heart and in his life. If there is remaining indwelling sin, then there must be conflict, the conflict which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and following. It is futile to argue that this conflict is not normal. And that's what we do. I shouldn't be in this, this struggle. I shouldn't be failing. I shouldn't be... No, this is what happens to us. If there is still sin to any degree in anyone who is indwelt by the Spirit, then you will find there is tension. No, even more than that, contradiction within the heart of the Christian. Indeed, the more sanctified a person is, the more conformed he is to the image of Christ, all the more he will recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper your apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of your love for God, the more persisting his yearning, your yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, therefore the more conscious you will be of the gravity of sin which remains, and more poignant your detestation of it. Then he says this, we believers, we still have the presence of sin. Nay, we have the stirrings and working of corruption. These make us have a sad heart and a wet eye. Yet Christ has thus far freed us from sin. It shall not have dominion. There may be turbulence, but there shall not be prevalence. Sin may get into the throne of the heart, play the tyrant in this or in that particular kind of sin, but it is no more the king. Jesus is the king. Right? Remember Romans 6.1? great question of Paul, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be, he says. May it never be. You can't go around saying, well, if I sin more, there'll be more grace to me. Can't do that. That's to abuse grace. Grace is not there to be abused. Grace is to be enjoyed. And submitted to. In fact, grace is not a license, is it? To keep on sinning. But grace is a liberty to keep us from sinning. We need more grace, don't we? 
Isn't that interesting why the apostles always talk with, start with grace, mercy, and peace? Or the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace! I need more grace. I need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Has it come to me? Yes, it has. Through the cross. I've already experienced it. And I can experience it by the Spirit every moment and every day of my life. So that because I'm on the hill difficulty, which is the narrow way, I will put one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, and I will go up slowly to that celestial city beyond. That's what it means to be a Christian. You will always be struggling. The hill difficulty is exactly that. Difficult. And there are lions. And there is Apollyon, Abaddon, the devil, the dragon, always to assault us. But we have Christ. And Christ has conquered. Christ has conquered sin. Christ has conquered Satan. And he now rules in us. So let us live this life of union with Jesus Christ, being justified by faith and being sanctified by His grace every step of the way. Let's pray together. <clears throat> now, Father, thank You so much for these words that You've given us in Paul's letter to the Romans. There's so much depth in Romans, Father, that we need to spend time thinking about it, working it out. But we pray this morning that as we struggle and persevere in our Christian experience, that you would give us the joy of Jesus Christ, so that our minds and our hearts will be taken up with Jesus, and we will be sanctified and saturated by grace that has come to us through him, through his death for us, and through our union with Him in His death, burial, resurrection, and even His ascension to glory. So we thank You for Your Word, and thank You for each other. Ask Your blessing upon us now, and help us to live for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.